Good morning, everybody. How's everybody doing? All right. Um, I'm excited to bring our sermon series to a conclusion. If you have been with us uh, in the past several weeks or if you've been online, you would know that we have been in the sermon series called Recovering Discipleship. And we've been looking at Acts chapter 2, a really powerful snippet, a, a glance into the life of the first followers of Jesus. And what we've been wrestling with is the idea that if you took a follower of Jesus during this period of time, Acts chapter 2, stood them side by side with a follower of Jesus, 2022, New York City, what would we notice? Are there things that have been lost when we think about what it means to follow Jesus that need to be recovered in our day and age? But also, we've been having an honest reflection and looking at the fact that over the last two plus years, we've all experienced an incredible degree of upheaval in our life and so much to process. And for many of us, we are looking at our own lives and saying there's certain things that have been lost in my own relationship with Jesus. And what might it look like for me to recover that? And today, we're going to get into one of the really heavier things in this text in terms of something that we need to recover. And before I read the text, I want to tell you a story of these two missionaries. One was from Africa and the other one was from America. And they had got to know each other over the course of a few years in respective mission fields. And so the American missionary spent some time in Africa. The African missionary spent some time in America. And the American missionary commented, he said, you know, brother, I've noticed something about you and your people that for me is very different. You, you all feel very comfortable talking about like income and what people make. Like you, you'll just talk and say, hey, how, how much money do you make? And how much money do you make? How much did you pay for that? And like, he's like, for me, that's very difficult. That's weird. We don't do that in America. Uh, we don't talk about money that way. And, and then the African pastor said, um, said, well, you know, it's interesting. I notice about you Americans that you talk about everything. <laughs> so, <laughs> so you talk about your feelings, you talk about your childhood, you, you talk about your family members. Uh, we don't talk about that. Uh, we, don't feel, we don't feel that kind of comfort. And so the, the missionary in Africa, um, he, they, the American missionary is pointing out like, a lack of comfort talking about family issues and personal soul stuff, but freely talking about money. And the American context, you don't talk about money, but you talk about your soul and your family life. And then it got quiet, and then the African missionary walks away and kind of said it to himself, said, well, I guess we both don't feel comfortable talking about our idols, about the things that are most pressing, the things that tend to take up occupancy in our heart and push God out of the center. We're going to look at a text, and I want to kind of prep you, especially every year, it does not fail whenever I preach this message, there's always new people. And so, um, and this is your first impression, like man, I came to church and they just talked a lot about money, of course, churches talk about money, what, why did I expect anything different? Um, there's two kind of messages, uh, I was talking to a pastor friend of mine, and he said, there's the Jesus is love messages and the Jesus is Lord messages. He said, no one really ever leaves my church for the Jesus is love messages. Um, the Jesus is Lord one. 
those things rub against the grain. Today, I hope you hear Jesus' love, but we're definitely going to hear Jesus' Lord. As we look at Acts chapter 2, verse 42 to 47, it says this, They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. I want to read verse 44 and 45 one last time. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for this opportunity to worship you, to gather with your people, and to study your word with expectant hearts to hear your voice, speak to us, challenge us, change us, comfort us, do a work in us that only you can. Holy Spirit, glorify Jesus. Help us to see him more clearly today. In Jesus' name we pray, amen and amen. And so, if the cat is not out the bag already today, we are gonna talk about money. And it's a scary topic. There's lots of baggage that comes with talking about this subject. But here's one thing I take comfort when I study the words of Jesus. Um, if you take all of Jesus' teachings in the Gospels and you add them all up, some estimate higher, but bear, like a, a safe estimate is that at least 15% of what Jesus spoke about he either spoke about money directly or used money to communicate a principle. So, especially for those visiting, if you were visiting Pastor Jesus' church, there's a 15% chance he'd be talking about money the Sunday you came. And so, why are, but why did Jesus talk about money so much and use money to communicate principles? It's because Jesus understood something that sometimes we are slow to acquiesce to and acknowledge, and that is that money is one of the most spiritually charged things in our lives. Uh, money is one of the greatest report cards into our souls, how we relate to it, how we think about it, how we manage it, how we spend it, what it produces in us in terms of fear, hope, um, aggressiveness. Uh, money does all sorts of things to us. And so no wonder Jesus spoke about money so much because if you want to talk to the heart of people and address so many dimensions of the human soul, talk about money and it touches all of these things. But in this text, we see something really fascinating happening. This is a snippet of the first followers of Jesus, their life together. And during this series, we've talked about so much of what happens in this text but we need some time to actually ask the question, how do we explain this moment? Because there's something powerful, something really earth-shattering, noteworthy. In fact, it might interest you to know that the, the, the great communist leader, Karl Marx, 
in his reflections on their movement, he cited the early church and he cited these verses as the revolutionary spirit that he felt was necessary to change the world. If we could come close as people in our day and age to embody what was happening here, he argued that the world might be different. Now, let me be clear before anybody says, oh, Pastor Chris quoted Karl Marx. What kind of church I'm at? We're not communists here. I'm just drawing a reference that might be interesting to you to note that what happened here in this text was so revolutionary that someone who gave their whole life to declare that there was no God noticed something significant happening here in the midst of a community that believed in God. How do we explain this moment? Because unlike communism, which forces people to abdicate personal property, this was a choice. These people freely chose, it says, to have everything in common. They were not being forced or imposed to. And on top of that, it says they sold their property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. So no one's mandating, no one's forcing this kind of radical generosity. They saw these needs. They, it, one could argue they were in a us against the world kind of moment. Um, they were a fledgling community with empires set against them and forces all around them, and so they were just trying to survive. That's one argument. How do you explain this moment? But that argument feels insufficient because when we look at what's happening here, it's extraordinary. I had a friend that, he's a, he's a follower of Jesus, and many years ago, he, he felt led to give the equivalent of all of his kids' collective college fund in one fell swoop. So he has three kids. He did very well in life. He worked for some of the biggest tech firms in the world. And his story is an amazing story um, where he started out very, very, very humble means, very humble beginnings. And at this point, he is landing some of the biggest contracts that his firms have, have ever seen. And he lived very radically in his generosity. This guy was one of the most generous people I've ever met. God used him in powerful ways, but this moment was noteworthy. It was like, wait a second, you did what? You gave your kids college tuition away? That, we, we were like, wow. This is something. It, why did that catch our attention? Not because he didn't have a history. He had a long history of giving. This was not new to him whatsoever. He gave like this all the time. But why it gripped us and it caught us is because moments like that, moments like Acts chapter 2, catch us because we recognize that it goes against the, de the default mode of our hearts. You want to know the default mode of our hearts? You don't have to get deep. You don't have to get scientific. You don't need a long study and research. Talk to a little child. And the moment they learn how to articulate things, what's one of the most powerful frequently words they use? Mine. It's in us. 
from very beginning. It, it, talk to most parents. Some of the most embarrassing moments with your kids when they're young is when they exert this inner narrative and they declare it out loud and you're trying to suppress it in public. Like, hey, no, you share. You got to share. But it, they, you got to teach children to share. You don't have to teach them to say mine. It's in us. It's in us to, to possess, to not want to let go. In extreme cases, it's in us to hoard. It's in us to be greedy. They asked Rockefeller, a man who had unbelievable wealth, is like, how much more money do you need to be satisfied? He said, just a little bit more. It's in us to want more, to not give, to not let go. And yet, in this moment, we're seeing something that goes against all of those impulses of greed and hoarding so we should pay attention to this moment and to really ask what's happening here. In order to understand what's happening here, we have to go even below the surface and we have to look at more scripture and understand what leads up to a moment like this. What trains people? What positions people or poises them to be able to live into this kind of generosity? And when it comes to the people of God, actually, the answer is quite very clear. This moment doesn't just happen by accident for these Jewish believers in Jesus. This moment they've been trained and molded and shaped by, by a powerful rhythm, a powerful call of obedience that we see in the scriptures leading up to this moment, and that is the discipline of tithing. If you're not familiar, one of the ways that the Jewish people were trained by God to honor him was to practice this thing called tithing. Now, tithing is quite simple. It means to take a tenth of your possessions and honor God with that tenth. It's to give a tenth of all that you make, all that you earn, all that you've been uh, blessed to steward, and to honor God with a tenth of it. Why a tenth? Doesn't God own all of it? Yes, God owns all of it. You giving a tenth is your way of acknowledging that God owns all of it. It's kind of making a statement on all of your money and say 100% of this is God's, and the way I acknowledge that and honor that is to give God a tenth. But look at what Malachi chapter 3, verse 8, because not all the time that God's people honor this and practice this, God has a scathing rebuke for his people. Malachi chapter 3, verse 8, will a mere mortal rob God? Yet you rob me. But you ask, how are we robbing you? In tithes and offerings. You are under a curse, your whole nation, because you're robbing me. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house. Test me in this says the Lord Almighty, and see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that there will not be room enough to store it. And so the people of God, Malachi is addressing a moment where they were being disobedient to the call of tithing, but throughout their relationship with God, God disciplined his people through this practice. It was one of the ways that he used to form them to make them a distinct, separate people in the world by calling them to practice tithing. 
I think one of the simplest ways I could express the benefit of tithing that I've seen in my own life and I've seen in the lives of many people is if you could imagine an incredibly windy day, kind of like today, and imagine you were outside holding a string to a kite. That would be a very energetic moment because the kite would go everywhere and every single moment you're having to pull and to stay, you can't be lax, you can't like get distracted. The moment you get distracted, there's enough force being pulled on that kite that it's just gonna fly anywhere unless it's tethered and held. In many ways, the tithe does that to our hearts. Where our hearts are so tempted to go all over the place, money and the thought of money and the stress of money and the need of money, can, can, as Pastor Denise was saying, can creep in so subtly and all of a sudden we wake up and we're just as consumeristic as the world, we're just as fretful, we're just as fearful, we're just as greedy, but tithing has a way to tame and to tether the wildness of our heart with respect to giving and generosity and stewardship. And so God had this principle at play in the life of his people but there were moments in scripture, and I wish we had time to get into it, where there was a call of generosity that exceeded tithing. So tithing was almost like a baseline. If you're familiar with jazz, there's the baseline that stays constant. And then there's these moments where there's a riff, but the baseline stays there. And so tithing was this baseline that ran through the life of the people of God. It was the constant. It was the thing that grounded them. And every now and then, they were called to riff and go into some, some in, incredible moments of generosity, particular with the building of the temple and moments such as that. So this moment in Acts, just to be clear, far exceeds tithes and offerings. And so if here today you're saying, what kind of church did I come into? They, they, they're going to ask me at the end of this service to sell my home, you know, to sell everything. What, where is this sermon going? No, that's not where we're going. I'm, I'm, I'm drawing your attention to how really startling this moment in Acts is because if the baseline has been tithing all along and at this moment they're going so deep as to sell all their possessions and their homes... This is something to take note of. And we could spend here lots of time trying to ask the question, why did they do this? What motivated them? And I'm sure there's a lot of incredibly insightful, interesting things that we could come up with. But I want to draw your attention to, I think, the simplest, clearest rationale, explanation for why these people dug in so deep into this moment of generosity. And it's none other than the fact that their hearts had been primed by Jesus. That what you're seeing at this moment is a people who have been primed by the love, the grace, the example, the teaching, the modeling of Jesus. And what we're watching is people that have watched him, learn from him, do what's natural. The natural evolution of watching Jesus, of being shaped by him, is to find ourselves in these moments where we dig in deep and we live out of incredible radical generosity. What did they see in Jesus that I think you and I need to see in him? 
if we're going to be a people that live into radical generosity. And, and, and let me ask you that question. Have you ever, like, asked God, or, or is that a prayer in your heart? And you don't have to raise your hand, but is it a prayer in your heart that says, God, I want to live radically generous? Or another way of saying that prayer, I want to live a life that doesn't worry about money, that isn't owned by money, that I'm not constantly thinking about it. I want to check my checking account less than 80 times a day. I, I, I want to stress less about money. That, that's another way of, of actually processing what's possible when our hearts have been primed by Jesus. But here's something that we could learn as we watch Jesus that could really change our hearts and position us for moments of radical generosity. Matthew chapter 8, verse 20. Jesus replied, Foxes have dens and birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. This is amazing. The owner of the universe lived as if he owned nothing. He had no place to lay his head. If there's anybody that could have walked around saying, that's mine, that's mine, that's mine, that's mine, it's Jesus. If there's anybody who could have lived this earth and says, I'm going to sleep in that comfy place. I'm going to wear the finest robes. I'm going to live into every, because why? Because I own it. I created it and chose not to. And so if you want to understand what a fully flourishing human life looks like, look to no other than Jesus. And what we see in Jesus is he lived his life with open hands. The one who could own everything chose to live as if he did not. And if we're honest, most of our anxieties come from the fact that we live like we're owners. Meanwhile, God created us to be stewards. I'm anxious over the things I own. I have no care whatsoever over things that I don't own. None. So let me give you an example. I'm hanging out with, with, with families, and they have kids, I have kids. And if their kids act up, creates no anxiety in me. <laughs> it looks like your problem. If my kids act up, oh, wait, your kid got a 91? Mm, bless you. My kid gets a 91, hey, we got to double down. You know, like, <laughs> what you own gives you anxiety. For some of us, why money gives us so much anxiety is because we still think we own it. We still think it's ours, rather than it's God's that he's entrusting us to live as stewards. Right now, so much anxiety would lift off your shoulders if you said... This, none of this is mine. None of this is mine. Oh, but if I, don't, if I don't have enough money, I can't have this, then maybe you're not supposed to have that. <gasps> but I want that. That's a problem, right? I have a friend that he's uh, very successful in helping businesses go public. Um, he was like one of the most successful under 30 business leaders in Pittsburgh. And um, I've been mentoring him since he was 14 years old. We have this great relationship, really proud of him. 
And he could, he could live very luxurious if he chose to, but he lives very humbly. And one of the th things he said is that he constantly looks at his, uh, the, the, the Lord's prayer where it says, give us this day our daily bread. And he says, if my appetites exceed the bread that's provided for me on a daily basis, then the problem is not the provision, it's my appetite. Jesus lived in this really powerful way, hands open. But look at what else Jesus did. How many in this room are planners that you like to plan? You can raise your hand. You should be proud of that. Um, you have friends that love you. <laughs> we need you. <laughs> you make the world go round. You're the reason why people can show up late. <laughs> because you're holding it down. I, I want to mess you up a little bit, but you wouldn't like the way Jesus planned certain trips. Because look at what it says in Matthew chapter 10, verse 7. Jesus is sending his disciples out two by two into various cities. And he says this, as you go, proclaim this message. The kingdom of heaven has come near. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse those who have leprosy, drive out demons. Freely you receive, freely give. Get this. Do not get any gold or silver or copper to take with you in your belts. No bag for the journey or extra shirt or sandals or a staff. For the worker is worth his keep. So if Jesus, if you and Jesus go for a road trip, know that it's going to be a different kind of road trip. It says, don't take money with you. How am I going to survive? Trust me. Don't pack extra clothes. Don't bring an extra staff. See, Jesus taught his disciples. The very apostles who were leading this first church were shaped by this experience. Jesus sent them out in this way. Imagine going out to go preach and do all these miracles in Jesus' name and have to trust that you will somehow be fed. That you'll have to trust that someone's going to let you in their home. This is how he trained these people. And now these very people are the leaders of the church. Of course, these leaders are going to lead the church into this moment of radical generosity that says, trust me. Because that's honestly probably the biggest anxiety that we wrestle with in the moment where we're, where we're processing a moment of radical generosity. It says, if I do this, how will I take care of X, Y, and Z? I won't have enough. And please hear me. Don't be irresponsible. Don't be reckless. That's not what we're advocating for. But don't be fearful either. I've known folks, when they're honest, they could have been radically generous, but the thing that stopped them was the fear of not having enough. And not having enough for comfort, not for necessity. Because Jesus trained them. You follow me, you go where I tell you, you'll always have what you need. Isn't that a word for us? You follow me, you go where I tell you, you'll always have what you need. This is how he trained his disciples. Go out, follow me, go where I tell you, you'll always have what you need. But there, there's another text that I think, how powerful would this have shaped the first followers of Jesus and led them to this moment to hear Jesus talk to them in this way. Matthew chapter 6, verse 19 to 24, Jesus says, do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moths and vermin destroy and where thieves break in and steal. 
But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moths and vermin do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is there, your heart will be also. Verse 24, no one can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. What we, what we process in these moments is that Jesus spoke to poor people in the strangest way. You know the Sermon on the Mount? Overwhelmingly, his audience was people who were day laborers, who, who had, were, they worked on a daily basis, had very little margin in their life. They didn't have excessive savings. They didn't have 401k plans, no cushions to, rush, to, to rest on. They, they worked every day to feed themselves for that day. And if they made a little extra, they had to reinvest it into whatever small business they had. And to those people, Jesus tells them, don't store up treasures for yourself on earth. Do you know all a poor person wants to do is to store up treasures for themselves on earth? That's, that's the biggest anxiety of poor people. I know, I grew up poor on welfare. Well, all you wanted to do was to store up just a little extra. And Jesus is telling poor people not to do this. Why? Not because it's, he's questioning the wisdom, the financial wisdom or the planning. The reason why he's telling them that is because poor and rich alike, no one is immune to the powerful, negative, captivating influence of greed, of hoarding that money can easily exert on ourselves. The problem is that money was meant to be an incredible tool, but we've allowed it to be an evil master. And this is where Jesus says, no one can serve two masters. It, this is a warning for us to let us know that our money is not neutral. It, it, it's either going to help you glorify God more, or it's going to help you become more indulgent. And here Jesus says you can't serve both God and money. So he's telling people who don't have money, he's warning them that it ensnares. When you don't have money, you dream that money can fix everything. But Jesus is saying it could also enslave you. Right now for some of us, a big check could solve a lot of our problems. And Jesus says, that big check could also enslave you. Trust me. Matthew 6, 28. And why do you worry about clothes? See how the flowers of the field grow. They do not labor or spin, yet I tell you that not even Solomon in all his splendor was dressed like one of these. If that is how God clothes the grass of the field which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, will he not much more clothe you, you of little faith? See, the people of God, the first followers of Jesus, they were primed for this moment of radical generosity. The baseline of tithing primed their heart. Every time they tithe, there was a reminder, this is not mine. I'm a steward. I live with my hands open. My possessions are not neutral. They either will help me worship God more or they'll pull me further away. So I choose to tether 
my life more to God, making a statement that 100% of this is his by apportioning 10%. They were primed for this moment. Similarly to what I believe that us as a church, we're primed for this moment of extending hope. I look forward to this moment in our church's calendar, but I also dread it because I know what happens in my own heart. As Pastor Denise was sharing this morning, I was going through some changes inside. It's like, oh, I, I, I thought I had an amount that we were supposed to give, and it felt very comfortable. Um, I, it is, I forget that this process is painful to talk to God and to actually come to him and say, what I have is not mine. I'm telling you as your pastor, I need to be reminded of that. In many ways, and forgive me, but I impose extending hope on you because I need it for me. If I'm going to follow Jesus with a community of people, I need to follow Jesus with a community of people that we collectively say we're going to give Jesus lordship over everything, even our money. Because if he can't talk to us about our money, then is he really Lord of everything? There's no place my kids can't go to in my house. All the doors are open. They, they, it's theirs. They feel at home. Does God feel that way with respect to our money? It's like, man, I could tell them I love them. I could tell them to not be racist. I could tell them to not be elitist. I can tell them to live in community, but they just won't let me talk to them about money. Or are we saying, God, talk to us about everything? I, here in my heart, I hope and pray and believe we're going to hit the 70,000 and exceed it, as outrageous as that sounds. But even if we don't, the greater victory for me is, did we all pray? Did we all talk to Jesus about our money? Because here's what gives me hope and confidence in that. If you're willing to let Jesus talk to you about your money, then I'm pretty sure you're going to be willing to let him talk to you about your body, about your emotions, about your decisions, about how you spend your time. And if he can talk to you about those other things, then you're actually growing as a disciple. This is a discipleship moment as we wrestle and pray with what it might mean to give above and beyond our normal giving. And each cause and organization we're supporting will radically move God's mission forward. But more than anything, this is an opportunity to talk to Jesus. This is also an opportunity, if this moment feels really like jumping off a cliff, it might be because we haven't let God prime our hearts through the practice of tithing. Where this moment feels like too big of a riff, maybe now is a moment for you to wrestle with what it might look like to practice this rhythm, this discipline of continuously telling your money it doesn't belong to you, it belongs to God. Start wherever you need to start, but that might be a powerful next step for any of us that are feeling so overwhelmed by this, this invitation to give above and beyond toward these causes. As we close, as the worship team comes forward, 
I want to invite us, could we stand? And as we stand and prepare to worship and respond to God, the prayer team is going to be in the back, to my right and your left. And at any given moment during these next few moments, you can slip out of your seat and go and receive prayer for the words that were shared earlier or anything you would need prayer for or anything the message might have stirred for you. We would love to pray with you at this time. But could I invite us as a posture, as a physical posture to communicate that, God, I want to wrestle with this. You have my attention. Could I invite you just to extend your hands forward and with your palms open? Your empty palms. And as we worship, in your own words, could you tell Jesus, what I have is not my own. Free me from the anxiety that comes from owning things that don't belong to me. They belong to you. We want to be a radically generous people, but only you can make that possible. So speak to us, teach us, meet us. If you could speak to us about our money, and you could speak to us about our relationships, about our motives, about our priorities, you could speak to us about so many other things. And that's what we're after in this season. Prime our hearts, Lord. Let's worship Him.